0: Welcome to the 37th installment of Ear to the Ground, the Land Stewardship Project's audio magazine podcast. Ear to the Ground features interviews and field reports related to sustainable agriculture, family farming, local food systems, and local democracy. I'm Brian DeVore, editor of the Land Stewardship Letter. On June 29, 2007, the Land Stewardship Project celebrated its 25th anniversary with an event called Keeping the Land and People Together. This evening of readings and discussion featured authors Wendell Berry, Mary Rose O'Reilly, and Joe Paddock. In Ear to the Ground, number 35, we featured Wendell Berry's readings. In episode 36, Mary Rose O'Reilly was featured. In this podcast, Joe Paddock takes the stage. Joe Paddock is a poet, oral historian, and environmental writer who lives with his wife Nancy, also a writer and poet, in Litchfield, Minnesota. He is the author of an acclaimed biography, Keeper of the Wild, The Life of Ernest Oberholzer. He also co-authored with Nancy Paddock and Carol Bly, Soil and Survival, an LSP publication. His latest book of poems, A Sort of Honey, was published earlier this year. Paddock has been a finalist for the Minnesota Book Awards. During the Keeping the Land and People Together event, Paddock gave us a sampling of his work from over the past several years. I was
1: around with the Land Stewardship Project uh, when it was getting started uh, in 1982, and I can testify about how Ron scratched to ke- get this thing going and keep it going, and it's a wonderful thing uh, to see a gathering like this tonight as an outcome of uh, those early years. And Thanks, Ron. <laughs> when Dana Jackson called uh, me about participating in this particular event, uh, she mentioned two poems of mine that I used to read many years ago when we were first getting going with this project. And uh, right away it occurred to me that I probably should, start, should read poems and material that grew out of those early years to give you kind of a historical perspective of what we were up to. Uh, the interconnected land organism was my central metaphor during those early years, and loss of topsoil was, of course, our central issue. Uh, our theme tonight is keeping the land and people together, and in truth, the land and people are together in a very literal sense. I'd written a poem called "Black Energy," which made this point, and it became a sort of work poem—a way to get somewhere at the beginning of meetings before we kind of gave people the bad news in terms of what was happening on the land. Uh, this was one of the poems Dana remembered, and it uh, is called "Black Energy." Life is seething in this soil, which has been millions of years in the making. It has been forever in the making. A mingling of everything which ever whistled here leaped or waved in the wind. Plants and animals, grasses of this prairie, buffalo and antelope grazing down into roots and back again into the sun. Birds and insects, their wings still hum in this soil. And this swarm drinks sunlight and rain and rises again and again into corn and beans and flesh and bone, the quick bodies of animals and men risen from this black energy. And uh, sometimes that was a starting point in terms of gathering people's consciousness into how deeply they are connected with the land, even those who worked with it. I like to kind of think of that long historical perspective. At that time, Carol Bly and my wife Nancy and I were developing study materials for the project in its early days. And uh, these evolved into that Sierra Club book, uh, Soil and Survival, that Ron just mentioned. By the way, dedicated to Ron Cruz and absolutely loaded with Wendell Berry quotes. And... uh, The opening paragraph of that particular book uh, uh, sort of said some of the same things and maybe even a little bit more about uh, this land organism that we're all a part of, and I'm going to read that paragraph for you now. During that immense reach of time since planetary life first sparked and began its struggle, a thin layer of topsoil has developed over those areas most hospitable to the creatures that thrive and multiply on this earth. Considering the aeons of struggle and the price in lives, this layer of topsoil is almost unimaginably thin—a few inches, a foot, rarely two. It is the end product of all the life that has ever gone on in this place we call Earth. It is a magical medium through which old age and disease are transformed again and again into fresh and vital new life. It is the stuff of our flesh and our future. We, Earth's creatures, are but a haze that rises above this substance, always returning, always rising again. Now and again, a serious gardener, I've uh, done my tiny part in rebuilding soil, far less than many in this audience, I'm sure. But in any case, I've written a poem about building a compost pile, a sort of a microcosm of the land organism. I had some help from my beagle hound, Ring. Uh, It's called Leaf Dance, Life Dance. Oak leaves, walnut, willow, and ash. I rake and haul, heave barrel after barrel onto the fenced-in compost heap till full for the tenth time. And I toss my beagle over the fence, climb the little ladder and leap after, and we dance the pile down. This is what we live for. We stomp and leap and roll and ring sometimes almost altogether gone as he sounds after something which stinks, dead sparrow or tire-smashed squirrel, just the whipping white tip of his tail, which I sometimes grip till he flounders to the surface, his eyes filled with immense light. Down there, down there, every writhing nuance of his body speaks. Down there. So much life must love death, its smell and promise. Up and down, up and down, we leap and roll and dance, smashing dead leaves down tighter and tighter in the pile. And even now a new dance begins, which will flame high in spring when I mix in manure and the sun leans near, and insects, worms, and forty billion bacteria to some incredible power swarm in this ton of leaves. Up and down, up and down, leap and dance, snarl and eat, die in again for sheer joy." history uh, has been an important uh, part of my life, and it was important to those early days of the land stewardship project. It allowed us a sort of authenticity, which we may not have owned in our own psyches and experience. And uh, it also led sometimes to some wonderful stories that I I could work into narrative poems, which seemed to work reasonably well on the countryside. Uh, One was told to me by a farmer out uh, in Milroy, Minnesota, named Delmar de And I took this anecdote and imagined it out into an Arabic poem which I called Frogs, and this is the second <laughs> this is the second of the poems that Dana mentioned, Frogs. At that time there was still a pothole over every hill, and the frogs in the fall swarmed like maggots in the carcass of a dead horse. Sometimes after the coming of the cars, they had to get out the blade to scrape the slick off, crush of crushed frogs off that road that circles Stork Lake. One sunny Saturday afternoon in late September, more than 40 years back now down around the bay, about 15 town kids began to herd frogs up from the water's edge where they lay dozing in the sun by the thousands—big, heavy leopard frogs that would stretch nine, ten inches from nose to toe claw. They herded them slowly up over Anderson's Pasture Hill. You would have thought it was wind through grass sweeping ahead of them. Herded them up onto the road into town, herded them with real care, losing a few here and there, but maintaining the mass. Some guessed 5,000, some 10. And at the corner of six, they turned them, losing maybe 40 dozen, which bounced on over Hershey's lawn, confusing the beat Jesus out of their old on Monty who, after sniffing and poking with his paw, sat down and howled at a thin silver sliver of day moon in the sky. Old Mrs. Anger said she first heard a sound like five thousand hands patting meat. And when she looked up the street, she saw these kids, serious and quiet, with a gray-brown wave-like swamp water to their knees rolling along in front of them. Mrs. Anger said now, You never heard a word from a single one of those kids. They were silent and strange with that haze of a wave rolling along in front of them. Just that padding sound times 5,000. I tell you, it made the goose flesh roll up my back and arms. The boys claimed later that they had no plan, but when they came alongside Horse Nelson's Fix-It-Quick garage, which contained maybe a half-dozen broken-down cars and Horse and Alan, his son, and Wendy Jeffers, one kid barked, bring them on in, and they turned that herd of frogs on a dime—they were hurting easy by this time—and ran them through the entranceway. Young Jim and Dean grabbed the handle of the sliding door and rode her shut and those kids vanished like fifteen rabbits into whatever weed patch they could find. Well, hell, you can imagine. Windy was on his back working upward on a spring when those slimy devils started sliding all over him. They see he most near tipped that model on its side getting out of there, and Horse, who was no doubt nearly through his daily pint of peach brandy, dropped a camshaft on Alan's toe and ran and hid in the can. And Alan, who'd been mean and noisy from his first walk on, began hopping one-footed miss that froth of frogs. And you know how they have a way of climbing up the inside of your pants, all wet with those scratchy little claws? Alan, slam-banging whatever came to hand, tipped a couple cars from jacks and screamed, I'm going to get Kevin Klinster for this. Forty-three years have passed, but those frogs have never quit rolling from the tongues of people around town. It's one of those stories you learn early and carry with you and measure the taste of life by till the day you die. In my own young life, I once had an opportunity to learn that I, too, was part of the life-death sequence, uh, known as the food chain. Uh, I've since been told that uh, more kids have been killed by hogs than by stallions or bulls, and uh, uh, my uh, poem about it is called Hog Hunger. About 10, clutching my Red Rider BB gun, I strayed into the hog yard on that farm Hog Olson owned. Why was I there? Did I want to kill a sparrow or a pigeon? Town kid, I hadn't considered what I'd entered. The winds of the deep late afternoon hunger of fifty hogs waiting for the man to come and fill their, their jowl shine trough, deep with enough slop to ease the pain of emptiness in them. A sudden rush of hogs came at me, hooves and heavy shoulder bones as if a downhill avalanche of boulders. I faced a circle of burning little eyes and working jowls, tusks popping like small-caliber pistols. My pants leg was suddenly ripped, and I retreated toward the silo the white barn. As I backed through the deep, thick, and stinking stuff that had passed through the guts of hogs, old Carl, bald-head shining, was telling me again in his Swedish accent about kids who'd disappeared forever. Holy Jesus, yo, why they couldn't even find them, you know. (laughs) I'd seen hogs in yards like this take a dead calf down to glistening bone in minutes. Soft haunch and nose, long and sloppy uncoiling ropes of gut, all that sudden startling pudding, even the brush at the end of the tail, and then the bones as well, the soft calf skull crunched down, contained by grunt and squeal and the heavy heat of hog breathing. It can be said, it can be said that I'd come to see my situation as serious. Standing before that hog-hunger, I knew it to be the furthest depth of that vacuum nature abhors, deeper even than the emptiness in the hole that starts the cyclone turning, or perhaps the same. And I, young Naur, pork chop bones knew, too, for perhaps the first time that I was food. Butt and belly and brains, my own, could fill that emptiness at the center of the storm." Hogs were raised bigger back then, and these were three, four hundred pounds. They stood high on me, above the belt. Oh, how solid a thing a hog, its four hooves braced in mire. A kid couldn't budge one, and they'd backed me into a corner, where the round of the silo met the south wall of the barn. I was hit by a sudden wave of inner heat and foreknowledge. Felt the oozing of a sick sweat. I added a bit to the stink I stood in. Raised my pea shooter BB gun. Would it help? to take out an eye or two. Could I take cold aim and fire? Then a sort of grace of decision hit me. I'd go at them, screaming and flailing with the barrel of my BB gun as if I were the man who ran their world. But then I looked over my left shoulder and discovered even greater grace. A little ladder ran up the outside of the silo. I rose then, without thought or effort, rose up the metal rungs, rose above round little pig-eyes that burned like the tips of torches, saw sudden bafflement in those eyes, which the instant before it had me, and I laughed from deep within me, a laugh that unfolded out softly as the wings of that great bird of old myth reborn. I hung on the rungs of that ladder for maybe an hour, lording it over those fat, bristling backs. Then I found my moment and ran. There was a a possibly uh, necessary harshness among many of the men in farm country those early years after settlement, which led to some interesting characterizations and stories. And I've written a poem about one such man, and the the, uh, poem is... The poem is called Henry and Hilda. His temper killed a bull once with an axe, and tight Henry pinches his nickel till the buffalo suffocates. Hilda would give him a grocery list to fill at Swanson's. He'd get there and squint hard at that list. Couldn't, just couldn't hand it across to Swanson. Finally, slow as the tobacco juice sliding down his chin, he'd tear the slip evenly in half. Guess that's enough groceries for one day. Couldn't stand to lose anything, saw a small pig fall into his open well. In an instant flaring of desire to hold on, he leapt down after to keep his pig from drowning. Too late, he realized there was no way to climb back out. Water to his waist, Henry held that that squirming pig, which, though small, was still forty pounds and none too happy to be hugged down there in the dark. And now and again it released, as a pig must, its balls gurgle and slop into the water. Henry, within a rising stink, shifted from foot to foot, hour by hour in that icy water, calling, Help! I'm in the well! But the birds above simply kept singing. It meant less than nothing to Henry that from down in his dark shaft in the ground, stars could be seen in the daylit sky. He didn't bother himself with the physics of it. Why couldn't she hear him? Was she, too, treading at the bottom of a cold well of decision? Hilda finally did come. Her face hovered white as the moon above him. Henry, is that you down there with that pig? She lowered the ladder, and Henry struggled stubbornly up it with the little pig he'd saved to butcher, but had now come to know rather well. Hilda was surprised by the words that burned from Henry's tongue as he rose. Just take me out back and shoot me. No one so foolish as I deserves to live. For the briefest moment, then, as Hilda took the stinking little armload of hell from him, Henry saw something warm and forgotten as stars in daylight twinkling in her eyes. My concluding poem here uh, has to do with Uh, something about the early farmers of the region who were horsemen. And uh, on into old age, after the workhorse was gone from the picture, uh, the horse lived on in their unconscious minds and and imaginations. And uh, this poem is about one such old guy, and it's called His Horses. Nels T. Norgren, once powerful old farmer hovering at the edge of his death, He makes them laugh and cry with his talk of the hooves of horses. His nights now roar with galloping, the paired percherons and, and Belgians of his prime years, many tons of warm flesh gone long since to earth. But now, shoulder to haunch, eyes rolling white and manes whipping, they're here again, in the house with him, all night long, up the stairs and down the halls. He can't sleep for the roaring of hooves. Can't you hear them, Beth, Jim? Oh, Grandpa, you know those horses can't be running around the house all night. Behind thick lenses, old green eyes grow thoughtful. The big trembling fingers push through thin white hair. Well, I suppose you're right. Couldn't be. But goddamn, that one up front looked just like old Brown. He makes that horseman's clicking sound far back in his cheek, and his big hands pull against the reins of something bucking and plunging like the creek in late fall flood.
0: Thank you. For more on LSP's 25th anniversary, go to www.landstewardshipproject.org and click on the about us link. Send your comments and suggestions about this podcast to me, Brian DeVore, at at bdevore@landstewardshipproject.org. You can also call me at 612-729-6294. A special thank you goes out to Laura Borgendale, a Western Minnesota musician who provided Ear to the Grounds theme music. And a very special thank you to all of Land Stewardship Project's members who make initiatives such as this podcast possible. If you're not a member and would like to support us, go to landstewardshipproject.org to learn how to join LSP. Thanks for listening.